Welcome to Victory Church Podcast. At Victory, we are committed to connecting people to God, His church and their purpose. For more information, visit victorychurch.net.au. Now prepare your heart to hear a word from God today. And this series is called Famous Last Words. You know, this series is one that will be leading up to Easter and it's based on the seven sayings of Jesus that the things that he said while he was there and he was hanging on the cross. You know, some last words are completely unintended. They're really accidental last words. They're things that, you know, we may say before doing something or, or having something happen to us. And I remember, you know, if you can cast your mind back to last week, Pastor Ashley showed us some photos of people who did some silly things. And we've all done silly things, am I right? Especially us guys. We're great at just doing dumb things, but thinking that we're amazing doing it. And I remember when I was growing up in Sejuna, the first license that I got was my motorbike license. And I had this Honda, it was a Honda 185. It was about 100 years old, but it was my bike and I loved it. And I would go in and out of work with it. You know, I worked about 10 kilometres away, so I'd use that for work. And I remember one Tuesday, I was at the Shell service station where in Sejuna, you know, that's the hangout spot. I was there with my mates and I'd Probably just had a pie and an iced coffee, as we do in the country. And uh, I remember saying to my mates, we better barrel down. We've got footy training. And I said, you watch. As I come through the gates, I'm going to slide my motorbike out sideways and just drift it around. It's going to be amazing. Make sure you're watching. So I go down and, and I take off. And, you know, as, a, as an 18-year-old, I took off like an idiot on a bike. And uh, I barrel down and I come in through the gates of the Sejuna Footy Club and I bring my bike and I put the, you know, turn the accelerator and I slide it around and my bike kept on going that way and I went that way. (laughs) The laws of gravity didn't work for me that day. It was my famous last words, watch this, because I ended up with grazers all down my side, the entire, there's A grade, B grade, all the under 16s, everyone was watching me. You know, we also had about 15 or 20 uh, uh, policemen that were playing footy with us as well. And I'd, I don't know why, but I never got my P's. I just stayed on my L's for my motorbike for the next two or three years. But some last words are completely unintended. But some last words carry weight and power. Especially when you know that your time is coming and, and, and in Jesus' sake, he knew that his time was about to come. And when he says these seven things on the cross, they carry weight and power and the things that he said were done deliberately, they were said deliberately. You know, as we come into Easter, we'll be looking at these seven statements and some of these statements and today we'll be looking at one of those. But we know the story of Jesus' ministry well. You know, Jesus was born... And we know the story of the manger and uh, the Immaculate Conception and and Mary the Virgin. And we know that Jesus then grows up. And when he's about 30 years of age, he begins his ministry. And his ministry lasts for a period of about three years. And Jesus in that time, in that three-year period, he's walking up and down Judea, the Roman province of Judea, which is now modern-day Israel and Palestine. And he's walking up and down and he's performing miracles. He's healing the sick. He's casting out demons and he's teaching. And you'll see some of his teachings in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. And Jesus is saying things that are 
upsetting the order and upsetting the, the culture and the time of the, 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 that they were in at that time. And so what they did is the leaders of that time, the religious leaders, the legal leaders, all tried their best to be able to trap Him because they had decided in their heart that it was time for Jesus to die. And so they did things like saying, you know, who should we pay taxes to? And Jesus comes back and says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. They do things like bringing a woman caught in adultery and trying to trap Jesus into condemning this woman to be stoned according to the law. And Jesus says, let he without sin cast the first stone. We know the story well. We know that Jesus did these amazing things and these miraculous things. And then he ended up in Jerusalem. And it's in Jerusalem that they're having the Passover feast. And this is where Jesus is finally and ultimately betrayed. We know that he's in the Garden of Gethsemane and Judas comes up to him with a lot of soldiers and kisses Jesus on the cheek. And that was the indication and the sign to say, this is the person, this is the one, this is Jesus. And that's where we're going to pick up our Scripture today. Luke 23. If you've got your Bibles here with you, the book of Luke, uh, chapter 23, verse 32. If you don't have your Bibles, um, it'll be on the screens behind me. Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. You see, Jesus had been uh, taken, he'd been arrested at the Garden of Gethsemane and he was taken to the high priests, the, high, the, the religious leaders of the time for a trial. And they found him that he, that, that he was guilty and he deserved death. And the only people that could carry out a death sentence were the Roman government that was the occupiers at the time. And so the, the, the priests and the leaders took Jesus to Pontius Pilate. And Pontius Pilate heard that he was from Galilee. And so he sent him back up to Herod, who was the ruler of that particular section of Israel. And Herod sent him back to, down to Pontius Pilate and said, well, there's nothing that I can do for you, but uh, it's up to you, Pontius Pilate, because we're in Jerusalem. So Jesus had been caught. He'd been tried three times by three different people. Each time he was beaten and he was whipped and he was mocked. He had his clothes stripped off him and he had the crown of thorns put on his head and jammed in. And then ultimately they gave him this cross, this big wooden cross to carry. You see, where Pontius Pilate was, where he was situated in Jerusalem, was a place called the Antonia Fortress, which you can actually go and still see part of that today. And they say that it was about seven or 800 metres to the place where he was going to be crucified. They call it Golgotha or the place of the skull. And so Jesus has this cross. He's been beaten. He's been whipped. And he's, been he's had his crown of thorns put on his head. And he puts this cross over his shoulder. And he begins this 800 metre walk from the Antonia Fortress, carrying this cross on his back to Golgotha, the place of the skull. He also had those two criminals there with him. And when they came to the place called the skull, we're picking up at verse 33, they crucified him there. Along with the criminals, he had one on his right and he had one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. We're going to skip down to verse 39 and it says, One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you're under the same sentence? 
you know, we've got one criminal on the right and he's mocking Jesus who's in the middle and, and just saying, you know, joining in because we've got the crowd that's in front of him. And if you read the context, they're all yelling out abuse and saying, save yourself, Jesus. And the criminal that's hanging there on the cross says, yeah, save yourself, Jesus, and save us as well. And this criminal on the other side, he, he looks to him and says, basically in, in, in my translation, you're an idiot. Jesus is here dying, but you're also here dying as well. You've got the same punishment as, this, as Jesus. And he goes on to say, we are getting what our deeds deserve, but this man has done nothing wrong. Then the, the criminal on the left said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered him, truly I tell you, Today you will be with me in paradise. Today you'll be with me in paradise. You see, this is one of the most well-known pictures of Christianity. We have probably the most popular and most well-known picture of Christianity is that that manger and that moment where we have Mary and she's uh, just given birth to Jesus and we have Jesus in a manger and we've got the shepherds and the wise men on one side and we've got the angels and you can probably picture the scene in your mind even now of those angels and just the light shining off them and this beautiful moment where we have Jesus you know on the in the manger and then probably the other most well-known picture of Christianity is this picture of a hill with three crosses on it and it's probably sunset if you're picturing it in your mind that's how I always picture it we've got the three empty crosses we've got the sun setting in the background on this beautiful hill it's so peaceful it looks so beautiful and calm but the truth is that it was anything but peaceful. You see, the Roman government, the Roman Empire, used crucifixion not only as a death sentence, but a way to humiliate and torture the worst of the worst. It was far from peaceful. You see, criminals are left completely naked in the burning sun over days and days as it takes days to die via this form of execution. In the end, through lack of water and through being there in the sun, you end up going mad Animals and birds will start to eat you and it's completely public. You're up on a hill, completely exposed. You see, the root word for excruciating is crucifix. It is painful and a terrible way to die. And Luke, who's the author of this particular passage of Scripture, gives us this picture of Jesus hanging on a cross. And either side of him, we have a criminal. One on his right, and one on his left. You know, we don't know much about these criminals. Luke doesn't tell us much about them. He doesn't tell us their name or their age or their height or what they've done. In the book of Matthew, he refers to them as revolutionaries. But we can assume that what they've done based on the second criminal's testimony is deserving of death. And we can ponder it and we can think about it. Were they murderers? Were they rapists? Were they people that have done particularly despicable things that earned them the right to be crucified, not only to be killed, but to be killed in the most horrible way? These criminals weren't good people. And we begin to wonder what they've done and it must have been bad. What is it that they have done to be deserving of dying alongside Jesus? I find myself comparing myself to these criminals and Quite often we put ourselves in the place of Jesus when we're reading the Bible stories, but I put myself in the place of these criminals. And I think, you know, these were bad people, but I'm not like them. I'm actually a pretty good person. You see, I was raised in a Christian home. My dad is a pastor. 
I've paid my taxes all my life. I'm a pretty good person. If there was a scale of goodness with zero being the bottom end and 100 being the top end, where would I fit on this scale? You know, would I be down the bottom at zero where probably these criminals belonged? Or maybe down the bottom with, I don't know who's the most despicable person you can think of, maybe a Hitler or a Pol Pot or a Mao, someone like that who's absolutely a, a terrible person and has killed lots of people. And, you know, they belong down at this bottom end of the goodness scale. But if we go up here to the other end, you know, at the 100, we've got up here, we've got Mother Teresa. You know, she's an amazing person and does amazing things. We've got really holy people in our church like Riley Jones, who's an amazing person, or Luke Jackson. You know, we've got the real holy people up here. And whereabouts do I sit on this goodness scale? You see, I remember being at school and sitting down for a math test and math was never my, uh, my favourite subject. And I would normally get between 49 and 51. And so I'd be here at 49 and I, I knew that if I studied five minutes extra, I would get 51. You see, 51 is a pass. What do I need to do? What are the things that I need to do to be able to get a pass. Whereabouts on the goodness scale would you be? If you had to think about it, if you thought about all of the great things that you've done versus all of the not so great things that you've done and you had to come up with a score, where do you think you would be? Would you be down the bottom end? I don't know, I don't know you, I know some of you, I don't know all of you. Would you be down the bottom end? Would you be up the top end with Riley Jones and Andre? Or would you be somewhere in the middle maybe? I don't know where you would find yourself on this goodness scale, but we look back at these two criminals hanging on the cross. Both have done despicable things, things so bad that they deserve death. You know, on the goodness scale, they were definitely down the wrong end. Yet one was saved and one wasn't. And Jesus said to one, today you will be with me in paradise. As we look at these famous last words a little bit deeper, I'm hoping we can unpackage this phrase a little bit more. But I believe to get the most out of this scripture that we need to first of all see our need. Do you see your need? You see, both criminals saw a need. They both saw that they were hanging on a cross. Both of them saw exactly the same thing and only one of them was saved. Only one of them recognised their real need. See, I was raised in Sejuna and I've talked about it many times and I'll probably talk about it a lot more. So <laughs> I hope you enjoy these stories about my childhood. But in Sejuna, it's a small town and I had a couple of friends and I remember when I was about 10 or 11, my friends came over, Mark and Alan. And Mark and Alan, there was the three of us and we were pretty tight buddies. You know, I came from a Christian home. My dad's a pastor and I grew up being, you know, a good kid and people knew me as the good kid. But Mark and Alan didn't come from Christian uh, homes, they came from non-Christian homes and, you know, it was easy for me to know I am the good kid. I am the holy kid. And I remember when, uh, when they came around to my house one day and we lived a couple of streets back from the main street. You know, every country town has a main street with all the shops in it. And uh, Mark and Alan said to me, hey, Phil, we're going to go down the main street and get some chocolate bars. And I said to them, awesome, I don't have any money, but I'm happy for you guys to shout me a chocolate bar. It's my favourite type of chocolate bar is a free chocolate bar. 
And so we walk down the street. It's about a, you know, about a kilometre. And for boys at 10 or 11, that's what we do. We didn't do anything else at the time. There was no PlayStations or Xboxes. So we walk down the main street. There's one shop in Sejuna, one supermarket, Phil and Judy's Food Town at the time. So we walk into Phil and Judy's Food Town. We walk past Phil. We walk past Judy. And we walk to the chocolate aisle. And one of the guys, Mark, stays at this end of the aisle. And he just stands there. And I walk up. And we get to the middle of the aisle and there's Alan and me. And Alan goes, now, Phil, when I give you the sign, I want you to grab the chocolate bars, put them in your pocket and walk straight out of the shop and don't stop walking until I catch up with you. And I went, what? I'm the good kid. I'm the, I come from a Christian family. I, I'm, I'm holy. I don't steal things. And Alan said, just do it. He didn't have a deep voice like that. It was probably a bit more high pitched. Just do it. And so Alan then walks up to the other end of the aisle and he's just standing guard there and he's looking back and he's looking left and right and he goes, gives me the sign, gives me the thumbs up. And I'm standing there and I'm in this moment, I'm thinking to myself, what do I do? I've been raised a certain way. I know I'm a good person, but I've got the boys either side of me telling me I need to do this. And so without thinking, without doing anything else, I close my eyes, put my hand out and grab three chocolate bars, put them in my pocket and walked out. And I walked out and I got down the street and I got out. And unlike Tony, Pastor Tony, I didn't get caught. Uh, You have to ask him about that story. And I got out and I got these chocolate bars and the boys came up to me. And, you know, it was a good feeling. But there was also this feeling that I just done something completely wrong. You know, when you do something wrong and you get that stirring and that pang of guilt and you can just feel it inside and we try to put ourselves, our mind off of it and we try to change the subject so we can stop thinking about this stirring and this guilt that goes on. And I remember at that moment thinking, I'm not as perfect as I thought I was. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but I think there would be a few people with a similar story. You've done something dumb, something wrong, and you feel those pangs of guilt and that stirring inside your stomach. Have you ever told a white lie, maybe to your children or to your mum or dad? Have you ever bought something that you weren't supposed to and hid it from your husband or wife? Have you ever looked at something or watched something that you shouldn't have watched? And as you're watching it, you're getting these stirrings of guilt and these pangs of guilt just stirring in your stomach. You see, Romans 3 verse 10 says, As the Scriptures say, no one is righteous, not even one. The reality is I have lied. I have stolen. I've been drunk. I've been caught speeding. And worse, I'm a sinner. And I'm sure that if you truly reflected on your life, you would realise as well, just like I did, that I'm not perfect. Romans 3.23 says, For everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. You see, one of the most common misunderstandings in the world today is that good people go to heaven. If I give enough or I go to church enough or if I help that old lady across the street or if I do well enough in this or if I do well enough in that, that I will make it into heaven. I'll get from a 49 to a 51 and we reason with ourselves, what is it that I need to do to make sure that I'm just better than the person behind me? 
and we look at the people on the, 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 the criminals on the cross and we look at the people to our right and say, it's all right, I'm better than them. But the reality is, it doesn't matter what number you are in the goodness scale. Good people don't go to heaven. Forgiven people go to heaven. You see, there were two criminals on the cross. Both heard and saw the same thing. Both were suffering terribly and dying. And both needed a saviour. But only one recognised his need. Do you recognise your need this morning? But I'm not really a bad person. I only stole a Turkish delight. That was the, the worst thing about that story was those three chocolate bars that I stole were Turkish delights. I really wish I'd opened my eyes. Don't you see all the good stuff I've done? Don't you see the sponsor children that I have? Don't you see the money that I give? Don't you see the Kalawasi project that I'm supporting? Don't you see the amount of times I come to church? I'm a good person. You see, I remember when I was dating Sarah and we lived about 20 kilometres or about 30 minutes apart and she lived in Burnside, I lived in Tea Tree Gully. And I remember driving up Glenburn Road late one night as I left Sarah's and I was on my way home back. I was living with my grandparents at the time. And I'm a good driver. I'm, I'm a responsible driver most of the time. And I stick under the speed limit. But this particular time, I was going through the intersection there between the parade and Glenburn Road and the light went orange. And you know exactly what to do when the light goes orange. You put your foot down to be able to make it through. So I put my foot down and my car sped up and I went through and the light went flash behind me and I've been caught by a red light camera and a speeding camera. I got caught doing 72 in a 60 zone and I got caught for running a red light. You see, at that point in time, I couldn't go to the judge and say, look at my good driving record. Look at this drive home. If we take it in perspective, I did so well the rest of the time. I stayed under 60, especially after I got caught speeding. <laughs> but the point is at that moment in time, that very point, I had done something wrong and I deserved a punishment. I deserved the punishment for what I had done. You know, it's easy to point to the criminals on either side of Jesus, these people that had done such terrible, such despicable things that they deserve to be crucified and to die for their actions. And we say, well, I'm not a criminal. I've never broken the Ten Commandments. I don't even know what they are to be able to break them. It was only a small lie. I only watched it once, maybe twice. I only sped for 20 seconds. I only did this. I only did that. It was only once. And we try to convince ourselves that it wasn't that bad or it was their fault anyway. And we compare ourselves and our wrongdoing and our sin with the sin of others. And we say, well, at least I'm better than them. I'm not as bad as those criminals. And we justify our way, our own wrongdoing and our own sin. But God is clear in James chapter 2, verse 10. For the person who keeps all of the laws except one is as guilty as a person who has broken all of God's laws. Even though... He was himself moments from his own death. The first thief still couldn't see his need for salvation. He mocked Jesus along with the crowd. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and save us. But the second thief saw deep into his own soul and saw his need of eternal salvation. And he saw beyond his immediate pain, his immediate needs. And he said, don't you fear God? We are being punished justly and what we are getting is what we deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. 
for you today? Can you look past your own goodness? Can we stop and recognise that maybe, just possibly, I'm not perfect? And as the second thief did, recognise our deep need for forgiveness and salvation. Because the truth is, good people don't go to heaven. Forgiven people go to heaven. First we recognise our need and then we ask for help, for eternal help. See, both criminals were guilty. Both thieves were in the same proximity to Jesus. They saw and heard the same things and they both asked for help. The first criminal who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. He mocked Jesus along with the crowd. And he's saying, if you're God, prove it. Do this for me. Save me. As if God maybe owed him for the work that he'd done. You know, sometimes... We can come from the same position as this first criminal that God owes us. And we say, heal me, Jesus, or bless me, Jesus, or help me with this, Jesus, or help me find a wife, Jesus. And we come and you say, don't you know the good things I've done? Don't you know that I tithe every Sunday? Don't you know that I'm here every week, week in, week out at church? And we look back and think of all the good things that we've done. And Jesus says, that's not how things work. You see, it's not wrong to pray for our immediate needs. Jesus did that in the Garden of Gethsemane and we read it in Luke 23, 42. He says, this is Jesus speaking, Father, if you're willing, please take this cup of suffering away from me. Yet I want your will to be done, not mine. You see, Jesus endured the immediate pain on the cross because he, would, he knew that it would lead to our eternal salvation. You know, I think of my oldest daughter Isla and she's in year four but last year she did a, a NAPLAN test and we know all about NAPLAN tests and I know that she was a little bit nervous, I know that she was a little bit worried and she could have come to me as her father and said to me, Dad, won't you let me out of this test? And I had the power to write a note back to the school and say, I don't want Isla to do this, she's exempted from the test. But I knew like I knew that I knew that Isla needed to sit this test to prepare her for the tests that were going to come in year six and year seven. And she needs to sit the tests in year seven because they'll prepare her for high school. And the tests in high school will prepare her for university. In the same way, when we're going through a test and asking God for help and crying out to be saved from it, maybe God can see the bigger picture, the bigger battle that you are being prepared for. It's not wrong to pray and ask God for help for salvation from our immediate needs, but it must be done with the perspective of the bigger picture. The first criminal asked for his immediate need. He asked for salvation from his immediate pain and what he was going through. And the second criminal asks for salvation for his eternal soul, his eternal salvation. You see, the second criminal wasn't saved because of the good things that he had done because by his own testimony and by what is recorded in the book of Luke, he had done no good things except things that were worthy of the punishment of death. But he comes to this realisation that Jesus is good. Jesus is pure. He's not getting what he deserves. But me, I'm a criminal and I'm getting the appropriate penalty for what I've done, for, what I've, for my sin. He humbled himself and asked Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. All he does is ask the question and believe. 
And Jesus turns to the criminal and says, Today you will be with me in paradise. You see, this criminal, he was in his last and dying breaths. This criminal here, he knew what was about to come. And he knew where he wanted to be, to be with Jesus in paradise. You see, some of us, we go through life and we feel like we can go through and we'll wait until our deathbed before we finally give up and we finally give our life to God and finally start you know, going to church and doing what He wants us to do. But the reality is this criminal had no other option, but we've got an option today. And I'm going to give an opportunity later on for you, if that is you and you're not walking with Jesus or you were once and you are now far away, to come back to Jesus. You see, if this criminal can be saved while dying next to Jesus on the cross, this criminal who had done such disgusting and despicable things that he was worthy of being crucified, then there is hope for you. There is nothing you have done. There is no distance too great. There is no sin too bad. When you humble yourself and call upon His name, ask for eternal help, you will be saved. You will be forgiven. The truth is, good people don't go to heaven. Forgiven people go to heaven. First, we recognise our need of salvation. Then we ask for eternal help. And lastly, we receive grace. This point when a thief, a murderer, a criminal at his point of death realises his need and humbles himself and asks Jesus to remember him, it's interesting to note what Jesus didn't say. He didn't say, why should I help you? I'm struggling here. You know, I've got enough problems of my own at the moment. He didn't say, you don't sound sorry enough. He didn't say, you haven't done enough good things. Jesus didn't say, well, you're not a good person. Jesus didn't say, well, you actually deserve to die and take the punishment for what you've done. Instead, Jesus, from his weakest point, moments from death, moments from what appears to be the ultimate defeat, uh, he is actually completing an act of total sacrifice. Jesus responds, truly, I tell you, today you'll be with me in paradise. He responds with nothing but grace and love, even in Jesus' most painful and tiresome moment, even when his moments away from death himself. He says, truly, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. If the band could come, that would be fantastic. You see, this criminal didn't do lots of good things. He didn't, church, he didn't come to church every Sunday. He didn't tithe. He didn't bow his head and close his eyes and put up his hand and respond in a normal way that we would accept as normal in our culture because he didn't have the opportunity to do any of that. He didn't come off the cross and, 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 and fulfil all the good things that he needed to be done. He didn't come off the cross and say, well, I better make retribution for all of the bad things that I've done and pay back. He did none of that because he didn't have the opportunity to do that. He simply placed his faith in Jesus and received the grace of God. He didn't do anything but receive. This point in time, this conversation at the cross disproves the belief that you have to do good or be good to be saved. All you need to do is ask and receive. You don't have to follow a 10-step program. You don't have to sign up to a church membership. You don't have to live like Mother Teresa. You don't need to do anything because it's not about how good you are or what you've done. It's about how good Jesus is and it's about what He has done for you. Because the truth is, good people don't go to heaven. Forgiven people go to heaven. 
God doesn't forgive us because we are good enough or have a passing mark in the goodness scale. Rather, He gives it to you because you are loved. God doesn't owe you healing because you've done good things. He heals you because He loves you. God doesn't owe you freedom because of the good things that you've done. He gives freedom to you because He loves you. God doesn't give us salvation and forgiveness because of the good things that you've done. He gives us salvation and forgiveness because He loves you. Ephesians 2 verses 8 to 9 goes, God saved you by His grace when you believed. You can't take credit for this. It's a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done so no one can boast about it. You see, in life you have to work for everything. You have to work to get ready to go to work. You have to work to be able to earn enough money to go on the holiday that you want. You have to work for your family and and work hard and fight hard so that your children will grow up and become responsible adults, adults that love Jesus. You have to work hard at your job so that your boss impresses, is impressed by the work that you do and maybe, just maybe you'll get that promotion. But in Christianity and with Jesus, there's one thing that you don't have to work for. You never have to do good. You don't have to work for the love of Jesus. That love of Jesus is an anchor. That salvation is an anchor. It's not going anywhere. You can't earn it. You can't work hard. It's there for you anyway. It doesn't matter where you've gone. It doesn't matter where you've done. It doesn't matter whether you've been a good person or a bad person. The love of Jesus and His saving grace is here today. His saving grace is here today. Romans 5 verse 8 says, But God showed us His great love by sending Jesus Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. He didn't wait for you to do enough or to be enough or to be good enough. He came even though we were still sinners. Not a harsh or a cruel God, but a loving Father who did everything just to have a relationship with us and a son that volunteered to die in our place. You see, at any point, Jesus, who was holy God, could have tapped out. He could have said, no, that's it. The pain is too much. Boom, I'm going back up to heaven. We'll try again in another couple of millennia. But Jesus knew that every single step He took was a step closer to His death. But every single step that He took carrying that cross was also a step closer to your freedom. Every single step He took carrying that cross was a step closer to your healing. Every single step that He took carrying that cross in pain with a crown of thorns was a step closer to your salvation. Jesus didn't quit. He could have quit, but He didn't. 1 Peter 1 verse 3 to 4 says, What a God we have. How fortunate we are to have Him. This Father of our Master Jesus Because Jesus was raised from the dead, we've been given a brand new life and have everything to live for, including a future in heaven. And the future starts now. Thank you for taking the time to listen. If you have any questions, please email us at admin at victorychurch.net.au. 